Okay, this is part two on the rise of Steam and Valve. It is one of the most consequential platforms ever built. It is gorgeous, it's beautiful, and nobody knows how much exactly it makes, but it makes a god-awful ton of money, and it is a force in the industry. I think everyone should aspire to build some kind of platform like this. With Half-Life out in 1998 and a huge hit, they opened up their product to the modding community, and in 1999, on top of the Half-Life version of, of the Quake engine, they got Counter-Strike. Gosh. So not only did Counter-Strike become a hit and drive another wave of revenue and sales for Half-Life, because you needed Half-Life to play it. You had to run it on top of Half-Life. So it reinvigorated Half-Life, but it sort of established itself as a brand on its own. It was so successful that in 2000, Valve acquired it. And they bought the team and the IP and brought it in-house and relaunched it as an official Valve product. It's super interesting because I, it hadn't occurred to me until you just mentioned it, but at that time, Half-Life and Counter-Strike were still packaged goods. Like, they were still in this packaged goods era. And so you didn't have the free-to-play mechanics, and so you really did need to own Half-Life to even play Counter-Strike at that time. And then I imagine they re-release. Is that, is that what happens with Counter-Strike? Like, they push out Counter-Strike as a... Uh, its own package good in stores then? Yeah, they did. And ultimately, because we know the end of the story, it migrates online and it becomes one of the most important games probably ever. Wouldn't be hyperbole to call that acquisition in 2000 of the team and the IP one of the great acquisitions in the history of the video game business. Yeah, in its most recent incarnation as CSGO or Counter-Strike Global Operations, it continues to be one of the most popular games in the world 20 years later. I have over 2,000 hours on CSGO, so I, 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 you're, you're preaching to the choir here. So you brought up the idea of Counter-Strike as a package good, as a companion to uh, Half-Life, which was out on the market at the time, and that's absolutely right. They, By acquiring that team and acquiring the IP, they had to now sort of press that as an independent package good and put it out into commerce. That led to some really interesting phenomenon that grew up around those games because in particular with Counter-Strike, Counter-Strike was a competitive game, right? It was more in the vein of a Quake 3 arena or an Unreal tournament. And because it was a competitive game, it raised an enormous number of sort of post-launch issues with regard to balance, with regard to exploits, with regard to cheating and other things like that. And at the same time, you know, Valve was internally working on the sequel to Half-Life, Half-Life 2, which was going to be even bigger and even more expansive than the previous version. You know, it's hard to remember what this was like in a kind of pre-internet era, but having a game like Counter-Strike, a competitive game out on the market, it had to be constantly patched and you needed to constantly get your users online to download software so that they could uh, make it work. And you had to lock people out of playing competitively if they hadn't downloaded the patches because they were capable of exploiting the game, of cheating, of doing the things that you were really trying to avoid getting them to do. And even in the benign cases, there were bugs. Software's always got bugs. And so you really needed to get people back online in order to patch those uh, even single player products so that they could be bug free and play as intended. Yeah, I can't even imagine at that time. Like, I, I play a lot of Counter-Strike still. I play a lot of League of Legends. And those games are balanced and updated quite a bit. And and so I can't imagine in that era, especially with how buggy the games must have been, uh, just how broken they, they were. And actually going getting the ability to update it must have been 
a true hassle. It was a true hassle, but it led to an incredible innovation. Gabe Newell, who we discussed, the CEO of Valve, and his partner, Mike Carrington, you know, these guys had come out of Microsoft. They had worked on the Windows team. They had worked on the Windows NT team at Microsoft prior to starting Valve. And by 2002, while they were getting ready to bring Half-Life 2 to market and had already had a couple of years of Counter-Strike under their belt, they began thinking about building this software tool that they could use to automatically update these games. So not only would it be really convenient for users who could get the latest and greatest and make sure that their products were bug-free, but it was also a way to keep the games competitively pure, to force patches and, and updates that would limit the exploitability of these multiplayer games. And so it was a really high priority for Valve to kind of get this right because they had a lot riding on, on these products. So they sought some input from third parties. In fact, they actually went back to their old bosses at Microsoft and it tried to get them to help them out in building this tool. But nobody bit and they ended up building it themselves. So they built their own standalone app, which they launched in 2003, just on the eve of Half-Life 2 launch. In order to get, when Half-Life 2 was finally on the market, in order to install Half-Life 2, you had to install this bit of software that allowed for the updating and patching. That app turned out to be Steam. Oh my gosh. And and at that time, I'm assuming Half-Life 2 was still a package good. It, it was more that you put in the disc and Steam was a downloadable program that you needed to actually run the game? Steam was on the disc. Okay. And you ran it in parallel with uh, Half-Life, the package good. And it reached out to the internet and helped download patches, auto-install, made sure you were up to date, et cetera, et cetera. It was basically an updater for, the, for Valve's products. And from those humble beginnings, one of the most important companies in the entire video game business, in the history of the video game business, got started. Yeah, Steam to this day is truly the giant of the video game industry. And I have probably 150 games on, on Steam. But for people who aren't familiar with what Steam is today, maybe it'd be helpful if we just talk through what Steam actually looks like today. I think it could be argued that Steam was really the first game service to take advantage of the disruptive power of the internet. It's fundamentally changed the way games have been marketed, sold, and even played since it came out on the market. It was released, as we said, back in 2003 and really came to the fore in 2004 when Half-Life 2 came out. And since that release, it's grown to over 100 million monthly active gamers. And those gamers use Steam. They discover games there. They buy them. They manage their licenses and libraries of games. They participate in a huge community of gamers who come to the site on a daily or monthly basis in order to check out what's new and to log and play their games. Valve's very secretive about their numbers. They remain a private company to this day, something we'll talk a little bit about later on. But it's estimated that they generate more than $5 billion a year in revenue. And that represents a substantial fraction of video game revenues. It's just staggering how successful Steam has been and how important it's been. Steam today is, is now almost the de facto places where you launch your game digitally because Steam essentially collapses. It, it plays this critical role in collapsing what the package good model was, and it turns it into digital distribution. Do you happen to know when that shift finally happens? Like when they start releasing games through Steam? It took a couple of years before Steam went 
fully online and before the marketplace really came to the fore. I mean, you think about it on launch, it really just served two functions, right? First was license validation. So, you know, were you the legit owner of the game? And this was kind of something we talked about in the last episode when we talked about piracy, that license validation and copy protection were still really important concerns in 2004 because of the nature of the packaged goods business. So, you know, that was one thing that Steam did when it first came out. And then the second was that it was a hosting and downloading facility, but primarily for mods. It wasn't really a place where you would go to buy a packaged good, a fully featured $60 version of the game. It was more a place where you would go to download peripheral content, if you will, content that was pertinent to the main skew that was going to enhance your experience. It was really more of a kind of enthusiast community in those days than it really was a commercial marketplace. But that evolved. And over time, they made a couple of game-changing moves. So first, they bought the online community network, the world opponent network that really they had kind of helped build with their publisher, Sierra Online. Um, I think they bought that in the in the mid-2000s, 2004, 2005 era. And it sort of gave them a community and matchmaking service that they could bolt on to their products on the one hand. They shut it down. They shut down the branding of the old world opponent network and they just rolled it into Steam and it just became the Steam community at that point, right? Mm. So they now had their own audience that they were aggregating on this online platform. And then in 2005, they opened up the Steam store, the mod store we discussed earlier, to third-party publishers. So for the first time, developers and publishers who wanted to sell their games as digital downloads could do so, and they could leverage the fact that Steam had this enormous audience of users with accounts online. Yeah, it's amazing. I take it for granted today, but when I look at Steam, it's just like, okay, this is my default gaming app. I have all of my friends on there. I have my community. I have you know, all of my mods, everything in there, even my in-game uh, virtual goods. And so it's fascinating at that moment in time, I don't even know if they understood that what they were about to unleash, but obviously opening up a, a, this digital goods marketplace or just a, the marketplace of digital game downloads completely changes the industry, I imagine. It did, and it had really two principal, radical, transformative changes, really. So you think about it, the first one was it eliminated the package from packaged goods. Hmm. And by eliminating the package from packaged goods, and by that I mean the box, the disc, and frankly, the retail shelf, it completely changed the relationship between publishers and developers because suddenly a lot of the justification for publishing, which was, hey, we're the ones with access to the shelf space in Best Buy. And if you really want to get your end cap for Christmas, you need to come through us because we control those end caps in Best Buy. That was no longer relevant because we we were no longer putting a package into commerce. We were simply downloading bits onto your computer, which you could then run locally. So That transformation, that elimination of the package from packaged goods is a really underappreciated power move here because it invalidated a lot of what made the existing incumbent publishers powerful in the first place. To put it even more bluntly, like instead of having to build millions of dollars worth of packaged goods inventory for a launch, a developer could just upload a single digital copy of their game to the Steam store, incurring zero marginal costs. And for each subsequent unit sold, there was no cost of goods anymore. That was an absolutely radical and transformative moment in the video game business. And it shifted the 
power structure of the video game business fundamentally would have lasting effects. But kind of more important in some ways was what they were able to do on the audience side. Hmm. What they provided to these developers and publishers who were willing to list their products on the Steam store was access to this huge and super high qualified, because they were already gamers, this high qualified audience of gamers. As we said, over 150 million uh, accounts with credit cards on file. And this really changed the way that a game company could do customer acquisition, right? In the old days, you had to go run magazine ads and television ads where you were casting this enormously leaky net out into the sea and you were coming back with, you know, some gamers. And, you know, we used to laugh because like Comedy Central after 10 p.m. was like the best place (laughs) to find gamers back in that era because we knew that that was likely – the people that were watching TV, but that's how imprecise the idea of targeting was in those days. We really had to cast an incredibly wide net in order to get the few gamers who we could to show up at the party. Here, we knew that if we put our game up on Steam, we were getting access to gamers and only gamers because that's who was on Steam. And so again, that was massively disruptive because again, it changed the nature of customer acquisition in the video game business. Yeah, I, I think just to reiterate, we, it's hard to overstate the impact that Steam had and, and, and continues to have on the industry where it really did change the way that games were marketed and sold and distributed and then even just played. Like having that built-in friends list uh, that today is sort of the bedrock of, of my social network on games is honestly remarkable. Like it, it's hard to imagine that games ever existed or were distributed not in this way. And obviously I bought packaged goods back in the day, but... When you first use Steam, it just becomes this magical experience. By delivering an experience that was that compelling to the end user, that provided so much value to the end user, they really did earn their right to disrupt the video game business in a fundamental way. I think not only were they disruptive and transformative in a commercial way, but they actually made the experience of being a video gamer better. And Mm -hmm. in so doing, I think they still have tremendous goodwill from their community. And to this day, there's still a risk of not putting your game up on Steam because Steam continues to be a place that gamers want to use to manage their licenses, to manage their libraries. Exactly. And just so we clarify, like Steam, do you know what their take rate is? You know, at that time, they're taking revenue still, I imagine, on the digital downloads that are happening. They're taking it on a digital download basis versus the what you have in packaged goods model where uh, you have the supply chain collapse, uh, where in this case, you actually have a digital distribution take rate. Yeah, it flipped the model. Yeah. So rather than a 70-30, if you will, relationship between the high-end developer and the publisher, where the publisher was taking 70 and the developer was taking 30, Steam was taking an, a roughly equivalent amount to the royalty and passing along the rest of that cash to the developer, the publisher who was putting their game up in the first place. And they had to in a lot of ways because those third parties were taking risk. Those third parties were primarily self-financing. The reason I consider Valve a publisher in their own right is because they themselves were taking inventory risk and financing risk and marketing risk on their own products, right? CSGO, Half-Life, ultimately Team Fortress, Portal, The list goes on and on of games that Valve put up on their own that were financed by them, developed by them. And therefore, I think they really deserve to be considered a publisher in their own regard. 
They did, however, publish third-party product, and they published it on kind of an arm's-length basis. And in so doing, they flipped the economics. They were able to do so because they had eliminated the package, because they had eliminated the need for access to shelf space. They had infinite shelf space. There was no marginal cost to putting another game up on the list, as there was marginal cost to building another video game shelf at Best Buy. It's fascinating because obviously that that 70-30 split is now almost a contested thing within the industry. But at that time, it was so much better in theory than the publisher deals that they were taking. Uh, they might have had some advances in, in some cases, but for the most part, this opens up an entirely new type of developer and access that they would have never had before. And it did shift some of the burden to these independent developers because now you were in a position where you would have to seek financing. That's not always a comfortable place for developers to be. But to back to your original question, the beginning of this episode, where we talked about the financeability of video games and video games as an investment, Steam was really a catalyst for bringing independent investors into the video game business. Because really, for the first time now, you could move from a developer who was building their own game with money provided by an investor from outside of the video game business and actually receive enough revenue from the sale of that game to justify the investment. Hmm. And, and you touched on something there before, which is the internet plays this really critical role here. Uh, and Steam sort of flips the economics. Obviously, we, we've seen this with other companies, you know, whether that's Amazon or uh, Uber or Airbnb. Like, what what actually happens in, in this case? Like, Because Steam plays such a critical role in flipping everything. So I think to understand this move, and you're right to put it into that same category with Amazon and others, you really need to understand this concept of aggregation theory. Let's take a minute and, and unpack that a little bit because I think it's so important to understanding why this is such an, a powerful concept in the games business and why it was so transformative. So in the old days, in the pre-internet era, as we've discussed again and again, you have this relationship where there are retailers and there are publishers and there are developers. And for the publisher, in order to guarantee that they're going to have sort of adequate access to demand, adequate access to the end user, they have to bring enough useful and interesting content to the retailer. So they have to get the supply side organized so that they can control enough hit supply to provide to that retailer so that that retailer can basically generate enough demand in their stores, can get the butts in the seats, if you will, in order to move units so that that revenue can flow back to the publisher. So really, the relationship was in order to control distribution, in order to control demand, in order to influence demand, you really looked back at your own supply and tried to control supply. And so you saw intellectual property licensing, right? Electronic Arts invested extremely heavily in sports brands because that was something that the retailers wanted and that they knew would drive demand at the retail level. And that happened throughout the industry, right? And that was the general order of things. When Steam came into the market and suddenly you had this new model, Steam wasn't aggregating supply. They were aggregating demand. They had their own 150 million users with their own credit cards on the platform. And by aggregating demand, the supply side of the business collapsed because now the supply side no longer really had to worry about the middleman of the publisher to get into commerce 
the supply side could go straight to the end user through the Steam marketplace. That is a transformation that Ben Thompson's written about extensively on his Stratechery site under the moniker of aggregation theory. And it's vital to understand what that entailed, when what that meant for the business when that happened, because it absolutely shifted the floor underneath everyone's feet. And we are still living in that world today, the world that was created from that move from aggregating supply to aggregating demand. Yeah, I think that the aggregating demand here, there's no clear point of how valuable it is to the point where you actually have EA and Activision games on Steam. You know, if, if you told any of those company execs 20 years ago uh, that they would be listed on another platform and they wouldn't be the ones traditionally publishing it or they'd be giving up 30% of net sales to Steam, that I imagine that, w- that would have been a crazy concept. Absolutely insane. Like, would, ne- would you'd never have really imagined it, right, in those days. And what I find so fascinating is that they didn't respond immediately. Electronic Arts, Activision, many of the other large publishers of the day, the console publishers as well, not just the console owners like Microsoft and Sony and Nintendo, but even the major publishers who were publishing to those platforms, none of them really got it. None of them really understood what was happening. And it's remarkable because they themselves had large audiences who had affinity with their brands. They could have done this. They could have aggregated audiences on their own. They could have put up their own alternatives, but they delayed and they waited and their innovators dilemma that they were burdened with in their inability to bite the hand that was feeding them at retail, if you will, really became problematic for them as this went on because Steam just continued to aggregate power and influence in the video game business and had access to all of the best content. Yeah, the amazing thing is, from from my perspective, I would have assumed this shift would have happened because of free-to-play, but it's important to note that like during this time, they're still the packaged goods. They're just digital packaged goods, right? Like You don't have the full shift of, of games on Steam being free-to-play games. And even to this day, a lot of games on Steam are still packaged goods. And I think that's just so fascinating that that it wasn't free-to-play that actually caused this shift of uh, the aggregation theory to kick in. It was just digital downloads and the internet. It was platform. Mm. And that's really the important concept that we need to talk about because what we're going to move from is a 20th century, you could even say 19th century industrial publishing model to what I've dubbed platform-based publishing. Yes. And In order to really understand that, you have to understand what I mean by platform here, right? Because we've already talked about publishing, making things available for sale, generating awareness. So a platform in this context is a business model that creates value by facilitating exchanges between customers and producers. So in our case, that's an exchange between, let's say, a game player and a game creator. You have a platform that's facilitating the exchange between those two. In this case, Art is moving in the direction of the end user and money is moving from the end user in the direction of of the creator. And so in order to make these exchanges happen, the platform creates large scalable networks of users and large scalable networks of products and makes those available on demand both ways so that the supply side, the creative side, has access to customers and the customers have access to product. And it's really important to understand that it's a two-way street. By combining then this idea of platform, this facilitation of exchange between creators and consumers on the one hand, and the concept of publisher that we've talked about before, where you've got a generator of awareness and an enabler of sale, 
you get this new hybrid entity, this thing that I call a platform-based publisher. And so it combines these two ideas, right? Platform on the one hand and publisher on the other. And it stands between producers and consumers, so facilitating awareness of new games and also streamlining the purchase of those games. And I think those, to me, are the key components of a platform-based publisher. I want to draw a little bit of a distinction here between a platform-based publisher and a platform. Because a lot of times when people hear this, there are marketplaces which function purely as platforms. So I would argue the iOS App Store, for example. They don't take any risk with any of their products. They don't have any creative contribution to their own store, if you will, in the, at least in the games context. They do in the application software realm, but not in games. And therefore, they're really functioning just as an online retailer of games, right? Mm. They're, not, they're not taking marketing risk. They're not taking product inventory risk or, or creative risk, if you will. And therefore, I consider them a platform, but not a publisher or a platform-based publisher. On the other hand, you have things like Epic or Riot even, which I do consider platform-based publishers. I mean, Riot's audience is all aggregated online. For a long time, they really functioned kind of as an online super developer. They were the publisher of League of Legends, but that was about it. And so their platform was useful as it supplied users and content to League of Legends, but not really beyond that. But then after a decade or so in, in business, they decided to branch out and start releasing new product and Valorant a very successful product, came to the market leveraging that platform because they already aggregated the audience and they were able to market Valorant directly to that audience, provide them with the download from their own platform and facilitate that commercial relationship. So I think you could argue that very successfully, in my opinion, that Riot and Epic are prime examples of modern platform-based publishers. I think you could even take it further and suggest that Tencent, which has grown to become the largest video game publisher in the world, it's a Chinese company that started out in the messaging business with a product called QQ and WeChat, which frankly at this point have aggregated a billion users in China and in other countries onto this platform. They decided that they wanted to be in the games business in a big way and they started to acquire developers to build product in their own internal studios and to make their platform available to third parties in a Steam-like way. And they've grown to be the largest publisher in the world on that basis. But they're clearly a publisher because they're taking creative development and marketing risk across a broad portfolio of product. And they've really become the alpha predator of the modern video game business. Yeah, I think in this case, it all ties back to they're building great games, they're aggregating demand, and they're, in a Steam case, you're choosing to open that up to everyone. Or in an Epic case, you're choosing to open up the marketplace and leverage that demand to build out the entire ecosystem. In Riot's case, you're actually saying, hey, we're going to use this demand to publish our other games that we're going to build. And then obviously in the Tencent case, you know, acquired a bunch of studios and, and companies like Riot uh, and even Epic uh, to some extent where they can aggregate that demand and, and push it back out into their, their ecosystem. And given the commercial success and, and valuation success, if you will, enterprise value success of the Epics, of the Riots, and particularly of the Tencents, which has grown to become one of the most valuable companies in the world, it's really interesting to go back and revisit what happened to Valve hmm. because Valve as a company was a pretty curious case. I mean, Valve is to this day one of the most interesting companies in, in all of gaming, but it's still private, right? Like it, no, one, no one actually knows the numbers. And that to me uh, actually is this like indicator of 
okay, maybe maybe the financiers of this world or maybe the venture capitalists aren't even still aware of, of Valve. Like maybe they don't even understand how great of a business this actually is. Well, certainly to the extent that investors are really only looking at public companies, that would be the case. But I think most people are appreciating the fact that Valve is an incredibly important company. But I think more interestingly is why. What And I don't think anyone really knows what the answer to that question is. I mean, you think about the progression post the launch of Steam. So by the end of the first decade of the 21st century, by around 2010 or thereabouts, they moved into free-to-play. They'd made the changes to their commercial platform that permitted free-to-play so they could still get their cut and allow uh, developers to provide virtual goods and others. They'd moved some of their own games to virtual goods. So Team Fortress, a great example. I mean, what's what it's the hats? Yeah, the hats. And then Counter-Strike, I, I think, was a couple of years later where they, they introduced all of the, the Counter-Strike skins for every gun. And I mean, that's completely revitalized that game. So as we discussed, you know, this was Cartrider, right? I mean, th- these kinds of cosmetic upgrades to a free game, very reminiscent of the things we were seeing coming out of Korea five years earlier. So they are not lagging behind the times. They are not stuck in the packaged goods era, just simply putting an internet veneer on top. They are really continuing to innovate and continuing to move the platform in the direction that the puck is going, if you will. And so I think that's really important. They opened, you know, virtual goods monetization for their partners in 2015 after having kept it proprietary to their own games for a couple of years. So here you have this first really important commercial platform on the internet for games. It's growing like crazy. It's generating billions of dollars in revenue. And it's, by all accounts, ridiculously profitable. And it just seemed inevitable to all of us in the video game business at the time that Valve was going to take it public, was going to make a huge splash. This was going to be a worth tens of billions of dollars in the public market and that they were going to use that treasury, that that enormous balance sheet to go out and just really become a rival of EA and Activision and others in sort of directing the future of the video game business. And it didn't happen. Okay, I had to cut it off there, but obviously that's a very fascinating question. Why did Steam and Valve not become a broader video game publisher like EA and Activision and maybe Netflix? Uh, It's an interesting question. I don't fully know the answer, but honestly, I'm a little bit glad that they stopped where they stopped because they already dominate so much of the industry. 